Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership is Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. Perhaps the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. Hey listeners, it's now time to adapt in our fast-moving world. Welcome to the Leadership is Changing Highlights of 2021. I trust that you're going well, and it's really great to have you here with me. I've got three wonderful guests that I'm uh, going to introduce you to today, and we look at their highlights from 2021 in being interviewed as a guest. Now, before I do that, I just want to say thank you to all the wonderful messages of congratulations and, and so forth from everybody in relation to the recording of episode 250. It's a wonderful milestone to reach and so so glad to do it and wonderful to have our listeners with us. And if you are really excited about these uh, podcasts, these episodes, if you're on Apple, please put a review and a rating. And if you're on Spotify, there's a brand new facility now for your function for you to go in and put a rating in, in amongst uh, or against the podcast or a specific episode. All right, let's talk about our guests from episode one, two, three. Annalise Olsen, Capture the Magic at the Seams. What a wonderful episode that was. Episode 129, Phil Holden, Soft Skills are Hard Skills. We keep hearing about soft skills, but they're actually hard skills. And episode 131, Peggy Smith, Leadership is an Organic Journey. So listeners, sit back, relax, and enjoy this Highlights episode. Tell me more about your background, if you'd like to share anything else. But in particular, tell us a little bit more about the DJ lessons. <laughs> well, I, you know, music was a huge part of my life growing up. And trust me, if I could uh, have that as my career, or at least my second career, that's something I'm looking forward to. I'm a fourth generation Idahoan here in the United States, came from a middle-class background, spent a lot of my youth growing up singing, playing music, playing sports, keeping busy, and came from a family of educators where the global and lifelong learning is kind of part of everyday life. Was fortunate to live abroad at a, as a, at a young age in Denmark as an exchange student, and that really 
kind of shaped my trajectory about things I was interested in. And actually, after I went to university, joined HP and have had you know, new roles all over the company, all over the world, whether that was global business side doing R&D and product portfolio or out in front of customers in the US or in Asia or in Europe talking about PCs and printers. And so I feel fortunate to be a global citizen and look, having had an opportunity to look across the company end to end from many different roles. Yeah, impressive. And your background is very impressive and what you do and what you've done. So how did you get into leadership? You know, for me, it started back with sports, quite frankly. I I played basketball and soccer growing up. I was not the superstar, you know, up and down, up and down, but I was consistent. And and what I loved about sports was there were playbooks, you know, things always changed. You had different teams you were playing, you know, you may or may not get playing time. It was always a unique combination of skills depending on the year or the time. And so, you know, spending a lot of time winning and losing and learning those different sides of things really shaped, I think, who who I was then and what I wanted to become. I took steps in student leadership and other things over the years, coached then as I uh, coached sports, especially basketball for, I don't know, 20, 25 years on the side next to work. But so many synergies around being part of a team and what shaped my philosophy is, you know, one plus one is, you know, three or more and getting that magic at the seams of kind of any given Sunday, something could happen. And, and I, I I think that's where it really all started for me. Yeah. When you mentioned the magic at the seams and and you talked about before about winning and losing, losing and how that shaped you, because for a lot of people, they just want to win. They just always want to win. But how important is that shaping of you as a leader, both by winning and losing? How has that helped you? Yeah. Well, I mean, they say that shape, you know, things that shape us, it's not always the good, but it's usually how we persevere through the challenges, right? And so as you look at, you know, losing, it's like, well, gosh, okay, we failed. What happened? Did we prepare enough? You know, did we um, have the right combination of people on the field, you know, at the time? Did we get out trained? They're outpaced, you know, by things. Were we surprised? And the great thing is, you know, you can go back at a halftime in the locker room and you can regroup. You can have those conversations at the end of the game and and fuel yourself into what can you change? Because sports is a transformational thing for everyone all the time. Even the great athletes in the world and the Olympic athletes, they're always looking to achieve or do more. And and, and I think anyone can get better from where they're at. And so I think the the good and the bad teach us things. Yeah, and I think it's really important what you just said about half time, which is great because you can actually regroup and then see where you're at and adjust. And then the other one was at the end of the actual game. I'm not sure. I mean, I know a lot of organizations do do it and some leaders do do it, but I don't know if enough leaders do do a debrief, if I can put it that way, a, a way to sit down and, and do that. What's your thoughts about the importance of them actually doing that and what should they be doing around that? Yeah. I, you know, anytime I've either conducted or been part of postmortem kind of discussions or things, it's a hugely valuable place Mm -hmm. to be. I mean, first you want to create an environment where failure and trying things is okay, because obviously people don't want to hide. You you don't want people and teams hiding behind, you know, the green dashboard, but like, did we have hard enough goals to begin with, you know, to stretch ourselves, but also just the space to create the conversation. So whether it's something bigger and more formal sometimes on a cadence or a frequency, that's, that's useful, but also even one-on-one, 
you know, I like to do micro moment coaching. So, you know, you finish a moment, you finish a meeting or you finish a presentation or one of my team members finishes a big pitch, capturing right then and there about what worked and what maybe didn't work or what I should give them feedback on right away. It always feels more relevant than waiting, you know, till the mid-year review or the annual review because number one, nobody likes surprises and they may have forgotten. But also it's, if it's genuine and authentic and in the moment, it's when everyone's real in the time, right? To, To kind of learn and both receive the positive and or the constructive criticism too. Yeah, and I, and I like what you're saying about it being genuine and authentic because I think mm. that that is really important and in the moment, making it relevant. You're so right because how many times we've seen whereby there's been performance management, good luck, see you in a year's time, and um, they go back in a year's time and people get these surprises. It's just it's just silly. And yeah. so I think you're right. I mean, right there in the moment, that's the best time to hit the iron where it's hot, get mm. people to learn great debrief and some learnings for people so then they can improve for the next one, uh, which is coming up, uh, could be coming up next, which is good. So some good things there. Right? And the micro moment coaching, I like that terminology. <laughs> yeah, very good. Tell me more. Is there anything else that you want to share about your background? Well, I guess I've been really lucky that I've had, I guess, two stages to my working career. So there's the what I would call the pre-university phase, and then there's the post-university phase. So where I grew up in uh, in Bacargill and Southland, you know, I going to university was a, you know, for my family was probably a step uh, or a reach that was, you know, not necessarily achievable. And so I ended up working in a factory in a wool scour uh, in a carpet yarn, and I trained to be a textile dye, and I did that for nearly 10 years before I went to university. So post-university, I've been really lucky. I've done, a, you know, I've had some fabulous roles. I've met some amazing people, and I've had some life experiences that money can't buy in some respects. Yeah, cool. And what, what did you study in university? Well, when I my first degree was in uh, a B common marketing, and how that happened was that at the time when I was uh, working, I was working for a company called Bonds Hosiery. I was the die house supervisor, so I was. 20, 22 years old, thereabouts, and managing a team of people. And I was the youngest by far. And I used to have quite a bit of interaction with the marketing team because essentially I would take their particular views on the color of the hosiery and bring it to life. And so I kind of thought, gee, that that marketing stuff looks quite cool. How the hell do you do that? And and so I had some conversations with this particular, with the marketing, one of the marketing team there, the brand manager, and that really set things uh, alight for me. And then also the, at the time, Bonds started a graduate program, and you know I got interested in talking to some of them, and I realised that the opportunities that they were going to get versus the opportunities that I would get because I didn't have that degree were quite significant. So I was only ever going to progress. I mean, I was smart, I guess, but and hard working, but I was only ever going to progress if my boss liked me. That was it, you know, or I impressed somebody. Whereas if I potentially had a degree, I could, you know, in my own mind, I thought, well, I'd have more control, more levers, and I could, you know, take the, make the decisions that I wanted to make accordingly. Mm, good. Oh, it's great to hear. And tell me something. So how did you get actually into leadership yourself? Well, it came on me at a young age, I think. So when I left school, I was 17 years old and I was being trained to be the die house supervisor, you know, a trainee cadet. And I got collared by the shift supervisor, uh, foreman. His name was uh, Ewan Tilson. And I've never forgotten him, ever. You know, he was... A fairly hard character, tattoos when they weren't cool, you know, which signified that you were a hard man. 
He had one eye. He would be, I would say, late 30s, early 40s. But, you know, he was a smart guy that hadn't probably had the opportunities at up because of his background. And he collared me at 17 and pulled me aside and said, you're going to be the boss here one day. So what you need to remember is to treat everybody with with the same respect that you want to be treated yourself. Now, that's a cliche, but when you got you and Tilson, one eye covered in tats, a hard man looking at you hard, I thought, I better listen to this. And so at that time, I ended up running a night shift, and it was a bit of a gamble for the, um, for the business at that time. They had a big production order in, and they couldn't meet demands. And so I, got, I ended up running the night shift for a couple of weeks and led a group of uh, guys and had to teach them everything in that area who had never actually been in that area. And we ended up delivering over-delivering all expectations. And it was simply because, you know, my leadership method was I set the example through doing. And so I worked hard and kept everything focused and they all just followed. And, you know, that so it started really young. And then when I left home in Invercargill and I, I went to Wellington with Bonds Hosiery, you know, I was 19 and I suddenly found myself as the shift supervisor managing a group of people that were at least 10, 10 years older than I. So, you know, again, it was very much a style of leading by doing and you know, trying to create a team where we actually all sort of supported each other. So I wasn't afraid of getting my hands dirty, in other words. And I learned those sort of on the ground, on the floor aspects really early. So that's when it started. <laughs> yeah, wow. And tell me, I mean, because I think today you also with the generations, multiple generations working in the workforce today, a lot of the younger ones are coming through as managers and leaders today. What was it like for you to have people who were older working for you? How was the transition for you and how was it for them as well? I mean, it was initially, it was, you know, I was a little bit daunted by it. I mean, I thought, God, you know, I'm 19. I'm from Invercargill. I've never been out of town. You know, hell, I'm just, it's my first time on a plane. And, you know, here I was in the capital city with these people that had lived a completely different life to me and in an environment that was completely foreign. So it was hard, you know, and it challenged me on quite a number of levels. You know, when I think back about it, you know, I, I guess I just, I didn't f- dwell on it too much. I just got on and did things. And, you know, there was multiculturals and society in there, you know, big Pacifica, big Māori, a lot of Southeast Asian people, you know, so it was a real blending pot, whereas I'd come from a very monocultural background in Invercargill and Southland. So dealing with all that stuff was quite quite interesting. And I guess I just, you know, my, you know, my style is one of collaboration, and I think it started there, you know. It was, wasn't me, the boss, uh, the big white chief going, now you need to do that. And when you've done that, come and see me. It was like, we've got to do this. Let's go and do this. And this is how, you know, I think we should attack it, you know. And so as a consequence, the teams that I led on that particular shift at that time, we became quite high performing in our own way. Yeah. But I didn't have the science behind what was going on. I just kind of, you know, it was it was very granular. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what you said a few times already is that you just got on with it, right? And you were on on the floor with the people, rolling your sleeves up, getting on with it with them, rather than sitting in the office and pointing fingers, if I can put it that way, as a as an analogy. So yeah. it's a bit different. Yeah, exactly right, Dennis. And you know, there was a little bit of that from that current supervisor who ran that department. There was you know a little bit of remoteness there, whereas I was I wasn't cut from that cloth. You know, I was very much like my dad. You know, just get in there, lead by doing hands-on, you know, and as a consequence of that, people learn to trust that, you know, if I said I was going to do something or we were going to commit to something, we did it. 
So it kind of went from there. But it wasn't without its ups and downs, you know, managing various egos and some of the conversations I ended up having, you know, at 19 with some people that were, you know, in their early 30s about, oh, you know, sex education stuff. It was just bizarre because, you know, they had, hadn't had had wow. an education as such on some of the stuff. So they'd be coming to me and ask me, and I'm going, God, this is Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I never judged them, you know, because that was – yeah. My background was working class, and mum and dad worked hard, and dad had his own business. My mum was a worked in a shop and a, and worked in the hospital as a cleaner. You know, dad had his own electrical business. You know, you know he left school at fifteen to start work. That was that was that. So yep. you know, as I said before, that whole notion of oh, I'd like to go to university, it just wasn't a conversation that we had. It was just you know, you've got to get a job, son. Okay, right, cool. I don't know what I want to do, but this, yeah. Yeah, and I also think sounds like, you know, also even at the age of 19, you built trust and rapport with those individuals, and so they felt safe or they felt good to be able to come and have a conversation with you, which is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I remember there was one particular person who she was Samoan. She managed, a, a, well, there was just the two of her, and she managed a particular area in, uh, that fell under my realm that was absolutely critical in terms of getting the detail right and the what you know and the information right and she was known to be a hothead you know she could be incredibly just temperamental and fly off the handle so I spent a lot of time building a relationship with her to the point that you know I was the one that if there was ever a, a firework cracker went off I was the one sent in to try and deal with it but it didn't happen that often once I'd sort of come around because I just you know I just gave her the courtesy of time Mm. I think just listening, it's just a, it's a really powerful thing. And I didn't even know I was doing it at that age, but that's essentially what I was doing. I'd go in and listen. I feel, and I think today, if you look at the, the leadership of the world today and what's happening around the world, people are wanting that right now more than ever. And so even think about it those days, you know, you're a pioneer in what you did there, right? And what's happening today, people want to be heard. That's exactly right. You know, and I was having this exact conversation with a colleague yesterday and the notion of soft skills, the leadership soft skills. I'm going, can you remember hearing that, you know, over the last decade or so? Well, to me, they've always been hard skills. That's where the actual, where the metal hits the road, to be fair, because you can have all the technical skills in the world and degrees and all the rest of it. But if you can't actually work with people, you can't actually bring them along, you can't actually create a culture and a team and all those things, which have traditionally been seen as soft, therefore not important, I think you're doomed to fail. And if you look at all the great leaders through history, and even now, you know, look at in our own country with, with Jacinda and other people like that, that, that that's that ability to engage and, and create a, 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 you know, a culture where people are listened and trusted and, you know, all that sort of stuff is really, really powerful, in my opinion. Peggy, a massive welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dennis. I am super excited and super honored to be a part and a guest of your show today. Thank you. So I've talked about your background, which is it's a rich background. It's fantastic. And I'm um, just wanting you to let the listeners know, tell me, is there something else that we haven't heard in the introduction about your background? Is there something else you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, and Dennis, it's kind of funny. I always sort of get embarrassed when you hear people sort of read that stuff. <laughs> but what I find, and maybe this will sort of organically come out in our conversation on leadership today as well, is from a background perspective, what's really missing is the most 
your human part of this, which is that I'm a mom and a wife and my daughter is about to graduate university and I've been married for 31 years. I've had the privilege in my life to live in many places across the United States and to actually travel and see six out of the seven continents of the world. So I feel at the end of the day, incredibly blessed because without that structure of a wonderful husband, fantastic daughter, I could not have done those things that you read. Yeah, and it's really important for us to have that background structure. I, I call it actually the backbone of our success, right? It's it's what really actually holds things together. And if we have that in place, it actually just makes everything else a lot more sweeter in the way that we do things for sure. Oh, no doubt, no doubt about it, Dennis. I mean, listen, we, we couldn't do what we do and the job function. We're going to talk a little bit about that, actually, with some of the things that I think are sort of on the horizon for leadership. But if you didn't have that, to your point. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, Peggy, how did you get into leadership? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because, you know, Dennis, I don't know if there was ever this date that on, you know, January 1st, X was Z year, and now we've given you the crown of leadership. You know, I, I'm not sure that ever. I think it happens organically through a series of life experiences from the time maybe you led on the playground when you were in grade school, right? Maybe you were the person that was chosen that day to lead the dodgeball team or whatever it might have been. And so, you know, I guess when they formally give you that title or you look is when people start to call you that, which is also a unique thing. And it's like, oh, well, you're the leader. And you're like, hmm, with that, I think, comes tremendous responsibility. So I think I got into it by just sort of being there when things, when there was a gap, maybe, and, you know, stepping into that gap. And so, and I think I have enjoyed it and I've, I've always tried to do it bi-directionally. And again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that as well. Excellent. Yeah. I like what you say as well, that we need to step into the gap of leadership because, you know, sometimes there is a gap and who puts their hand up. And I like what you say about the organic, because I think a lot of, for a lot of people, they fall into leadership by mistake. And it's because, you know, for a lot of lot of organizations, they look around and they go, oh, sure, dude, great. You're, you're the new leader. Congratulations. And uh, we'll see you in 12 months' time. Good luck. And for a lot of people, they don't do too well in that leadership role because they haven't been supported or developed over the years. And, and it's quite difficult for them to look at things for sure. Well, listeners, what wonderful guests I've had on this podcast and so glad to just be able to give you and share a little bit about you with these snippets of these different interviews with Annalise, uh, Phil and Peggy. I'm going to encourage you now to go back to those episodes, episode 123, 129 and 131 and go back and listen to them in full because there's some fantastic insights that these guests are sharing with us. So go ahead and do that. If you haven't really checked out the Facebook group, Leadership is Changing, or the LinkedIn page, Leadership is Changing, we would love to see you there. Come along and join those community. We would love to see you. Hey, listeners, what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown and unfamiliar territory. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Look out for the episodes as they're being released. Download them, have a listen, put a review and a rating. Feel free to share them with your friends, your family, and your network. Hey, if there's any feedback you'd like to give me about the show, or if there's a question you have for the Ask Dennis Freestyle episode, then send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, it's always a pleasure being with you. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye for now. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 